You you have a test yeah. literally in like nine hours, right? Ask me if I've studied for it. No. Board relations. So this is you relating as a nonprofit, uh, whatever, relating to the board that helps oversee. That not helps. That is required by law to oversee it, my friend. Required by law. Okay, 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 okay. Let's talk about your fancy <laughs> law here. So you're saying, so you're saying, let's say tomorrow I started a board. I, I started a nonprofit and I had a board. I could, could I have my wife, my wife's brother, and then that's it on that board? Shit, there's a part of this that we did go over very, very briefly. Possibly. It's it's a little bit nuanced. A part of it is state laws with that, I believe. And I need to double check one thing. So I don't know is how okay. I'm going to respond to that. What if, let's just say, in the state of Kentucky, I use my wife's maiden name. <laughs> I know what you're doing. And let's say this: the, the, the attorney general of Kentucky investigated me and I found a bunch of yes men and just threw them onto that. And would that be okay enough? Would that provide enough cover that... You know, the government wouldn't, you know, destroy my nonprofit, wouldn't investigate, wouldn't ask too many questions. But at the same time, I could continue doing whatever the hell I wanted. So there are three things that a board is typically judged by um, legally when they uh, do anything wrong. So you have your duty of care, duty of loyalty and duty of obedience. Can I laugh that you said duty? (laughs) Yes. I think it would be very difficult if that is the case. If it's filled with your family members and you tried to put a bunch of yes men on there who quit, to actually say you have a clear-cut duty of loyalty and everything's fine. But you'd have to really violate a thing in order for that to happen. So it's one of those things where it's not necessarily against the law, but like if you if things look weird, then you have like it's actually so this is actually kind of interesting. Um kind kind of interesting. And I don't know a lot about nonprofit law yet. I will learn that in the fall. But a lot of your boards and the responsibility of the boards go back to English common law. Mm. So I asked this just because like, I would be nervous that I would have to hire or put someone on the board who doesn't understand my vision and my love. I'm speaking very sarcastically and mm-hmm. my love for my ministry and the, my love of money and obsession <laughs> with, you know, buying the most expensive house in the state of Texas. So I'm just, this is purely hypothetical, Texas, Kentucky, whatever it might be, that I would just stack the board unfairly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would stack the board unfairly with people who will never pro- provide authentic nonprofit oversight to make sure I had a fiduciary responsibility to my donors. In fact, was just raking in the cash money. I just want to know if there's an opportunity for me to do that in some fictional there, there could be. Now you now now here's now here's the thing. You could have your family on on that board, and okay. but if you're not violating your duty of loyalty, or if you're not you're putting the interest of the nonprofit above your own, then you're fine. Brilliant. However, Brilliant. however, if you were to put your own, let's just say, personal gain. Ahead of that. And by example, let's just say, hypothetically speaking, I sold a bunch of um, DVDs to make people feel like they were being really, really Catholic. And yes, but as as a Catholic, that's what you'd want to do. I mean, you're at a Catholic university. We all love the DVDs. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. We we all love the DVDs here at at, um, 
at Notre Dame. So what you would do then is you your nonprofit, they encourage people to like take the DVDs and to give them out for free. No, no, no. Here's here's the catch. So it's your donors who help you pay to have those things made. Right. Now, one of the hiccups that could be, and here's a potential, let's just call it a conflict of interest where you fail okay. your duty of loyalty because you're putting your own interest ahead of you know that of the that of the um, nonprofit. You own the DVD manufacturing um, company, right? But you yes. get it, and you don't do you don't put out like a call for any sort of competitive bids. You you, you just say, I'll just have this do it. And it's so, funny how it's funny how we adopt uh, a uh, like a like a very specific accent when we, <laughs> me and you talk sarcastically. But no, please continue. Let's just say let's just say. Well, let me ask you this question. This is an honest question mm-hmm. because me and you have read various hypothetical uh, tax records of various Catholic. I don't know if I would say apostolates or money vacuums um and in those they actually disclose the fact that there are multiple conflicts of interest or potential conflicts of interest and they state the relations when you think about your average donor how many of them how many average donors to a nonprofit organization would you say are aware of just aware of the board the board's composition of you know potentially just family members that would, may bring a conflict of interest. <laughs> I'd say very, very few probably actually know that, and very few would understand how it actually could be a potential conflict of interest. Okay, okay, okay. So if I – let's say tomorrow I start a nonprofit in order to do prison ministry, and people are like, oh, my gosh, the prison ministry needs are so dire. I'm willing to fund this because in the state of Texas, for instance, there are 111 units – prison units and only two Catholic full-time chaplains for those units. Um, all the rest are laymen and women who, you know, kind of volunteer, but there's no full-time chaplain. Um, whereas the Protestants occupy all every single other role. So I could say, Hey, don't you want to evangelize these people? So these people donate millions to me. And then I come up with a way with my board to, okay, Funneling those millions to me personally through side companies that are for profit, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But those, but my donors don't know that I have these for profit entities. But the board says it's okay. So, yikes! Like, would that be a conflict of interest, or would that be okay according to what you're learning? Well. Okay, this is where it gets a and, bit And I do want to say, this is now seven minutes into us speaking very <laughs> hypothetically. Oh, yeah, this is totally like, this is we're pulling us out of our bums, everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Texas, Texas, Kentucky, whatever. Indian Hill, you know, whatever. Um, so if you disclose the conflict of interest, and if your board has policies and procedures for how to handle said conflict of interest, then there might be some leeway there. So hypothetically speaking, if you had some type of procedure amongst your board, perhaps you do a thing where you say, well, you know what, here are the best rates or here are the common rates to have, you know, to have these DVDs mm. made, mm. but we're going to go with this, um, with like this, you know, like this, a company and they're going to be the best rates or like the most uncommon rates. So you see how there's a little bit of a gray, oh. of a gray area there. So and maybe would, your board or people within your nonprofit would say like, oh, hey, 
we're purchasing $10 a DVD, but there's a company who would do it for $2. We owe a fiduciary responsibility to all of these literally thousands of donors to go with the $2 so that we can stretch every penny that we've received as far as possible. But then that person says, you know, like in this case, me says, no, I need to buy the most expensive house I can possibly buy in the history. <laughs> we'll just say Houston, Texas. So I need to make this house payment. So we're going to go and funnel it to my for-profit company instead. Is that what you're saying? It's okay. As long as I di- disclose it. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, not morally just, okay, because morally yeah. we know that's entirely a bankrupt situation that no Roman Catholics could support. Could support. Yeah. But no, no, no. True. But true. like, like you know, minimally legalistically, I'm okay. I, I think what I'm saying more that that could that could be the case. <laughs> I'm not sure, but what well, like I'm arguing is, let's just pretend that you know this hypothetical organization, which Go is on. a very well a group in the way that they go about things. Um, I'll probably edit that. Go on. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So they, I mean, I, 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 poor choice of words. There was a lot that I could have chose. I'm not sure why I chose that. It's well so common, you know. So, um, but well, I mean, probably you probably chose those words because we both went to Franciscan University, whose catchphrase is dynamic, dynamic orthodoxy. orthodoxy. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly why. So let's call it, you know, uh, let's call them the dynamic O's, as uh, we used to say. And yeah. uh, the we're saying if your average DVD, if your average place to make said DVDs, hypothetical on um, DVDs again, costs you know five bucks. Here's a place that will like upcharge us five bucks, and we know that like this is the average rate, and we think it's okay to not get other bids because we know we are paying the average rate based upon like the, based upon these numbers right right here. Mm. So you okay. see how then it could be a little bit of like a gray area, but just enough to kind of be like, huh, that's weird. Yeah, but perhaps so think- they're not violating any specific law, and this is what's very interesting, though, about a lot of the stuff is that it is that it seems that it's actually like a um, like it's the courts who would have to. I mean, it's, it would have the court would have to interpret if a law was broken or if they failed in their duties as a board or 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 not. So they're really existing in the gray. But it's you know. But as weird. Catholics, we want to make sure that we're funding things that are that are well above board, that are not existing in nebulous gray personal profit areas. Yeah. We, we want to go. We want to make sure the companies that they're very transparent. They're on the up and up. They're not you know building warehouses that funnel money to a different LLC and then overcharging or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can I? Okay. Actually, take a like a um, hard pivot here into something. A little, I would. A little I would more love serious. for you to be. I would love for you to because I'm scared of where we're going. <laughs> oh, and yeah, we're no, just, totally. Me and you. Me and you. We're, yeah. we're all we've got. We're all we've got. I haven't bought that insurance yet. So. There's <laughs> um, blood in the water. There's blood in the water. I need to buy that soon. <laughs> uh, we'll, be, we'll, we'll be covered for $1 million. Okay, so. 
Let's take a brief break to talk about our friends over at Equipped. The statistics are pointing out what we've already seen with our own eyes. Engagement in the Catholic faith is not returning to what it was before the pandemic. Even though it may seem like the Catholic sky is falling, all is not lost. But we do need to take a bold action. Catholicism in the modern age requires new approaches to bring the love of God to a hurting world. Are you interested in figuring out how to practically do that? The team over at Equipped is hosting a free three-part video series that will break down what every Catholic needs to know about the state of the church and the world and what to do to help the church thrive in these challenging times. It's called Catholicism in the Modern Age. This mini-course is for anyone who wants their faith to be more than just a spectator sport. Parents, neighbors, friends, ministry leaders, priests, godparents, disciples, and yes, you. Anyone who desires to grow in their faith and invite others into the church will be equipped and encouraged by this video course. Each session is less than 15 minutes long and is filled with the latest research paired with our time-tested faith. By the end of the series, you will have clear, practical steps that will transform you, your faith, your family, and the world around you. Also, as a crazy side note of this AMA, it's hosted by my wife's ex-boyfriend. That's right, Chris Bartlett, who is an amazing human being, an excellent minister, used to date my wife before me. So click the affiliate link in the show notes and we get credit for you going. Catholicism in the Modern Age video mini course for you. Don't miss out. The game has already changed. The question is, have you updated your strategy to thrive as a Catholic disciple in this modern world? Thank you to our friends over at Equipped for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so you know the whole like um, condo thing that's happened down um, uh, down in Miami, right? No, I don't know where you're talking. Oh, the, the condo that collapsed. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is actually kind of interesting. I've, I've been I'm thinking about this in terms of like Catholic organizations. How much do you know about like um, boards, boards for either um, Catholic schools or for Catholic um, apostolates, non, not, you know, um, um, nonprofits, et cetera? Actually, I know a lot because I'm usually bored by them and I fall asleep. You get it? It's a joke. <laughs> I know nothing. I know okay. nothing. Okay. So, okay. So let me, a board has a responsibility. Okay, Luke, basically. you have 45 seconds. Go. Okay, so this thing that happened <laughs> down in Florida, where where half half of the building or half of it um fell, and like you know, um, dozens of people are now um dead. Yeah, it seems like it happened ultimately that the responsibility goes back to the to the board of a condo association that they failed in all three areas of their care of the duty as well as obedience. You may be able to argue that they didn't in terms of in like in terms of obedience but i think i I think that you i think that there is an argument for for that because by obedience you mean obedience to the 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 local bishop their their mission yeah yeah no no no. yes yeah yeah (laughs) the bishop bishop you know okay uh, (laughs) so what I think a lot of people tend to like view boards as these sort of like, oh, I've you know really have to have it. So let's just like go through the motions. It'll help all this poor nonprofit of um, people. I'll make sure that we are doing our, our you know our own jobs well, and we will we will go on with our day. And actually, what happens is that when you have a board that you know really um does that, the organization isn't going to be as effective as they can be. And if they're not going to be as effective as as they can be, that means that whatever service they Provide which, which, whichever public um, sector they're they're trying to support, whichever um type, whichever people they're trying to help, anything that they're trying to do, they're ultimately not going to be as um, good at that as they could. And this is act, and what happened out of Miami is a great example of the danger of poor board governance. And I think a lot of Catholic organizations need to take a hard look at this and ask are. What is our board culture like? Is this as good as it could be? And I've been, 
I mean, it's horrific that this whole thing has happened, but I'm also, I think, um, I'm trying to find, trying to find the right word here. It's been interesting to be, to be taking this class while all that is going on right now. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. So can I, here's one interesting thing. So while, uh, I neglected mowing my backyard for, uh, over two weeks. Okay. Wonderful father. Right. Well, no, no, no. Because we have a series of heavy rainstorms. I know. I'm just in kidding. Houston. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And I don't want to do it at all. Um, also, <laughs> also, I've been doing theology of the body week all week and stuff. I don't think I don't think there's a single theology of the body week that has had more reference to references to Scarface, The Simpsons. <laughs> Uh, gosh, I, I, I literally, I literally, I made a couple dick jokes and this is high schoolers and up. So I've had some elderly people there. I've had some parents with their kids there. The best part is when I said, I'm so happy some of you are here with your parents because now it's time to talk about sex <laughs> and all these kids are like, <laughs> uh, so, so I will say this in my, in my life. I read a book by a CEO, and I've, I found this very fast. So I'm, I'm, I'm mowing my backyard today, weed whacking the thicket, and I'm listening to a, a fire podcast and choose fi. And the guys were talking about inflation, and they're talking about wages and wages stagnation, which I know is a very big deal in your economic history of the United States, and all these different things. And I remember, I remembered suddenly this quote from uh, Jack Welsh. Are you familiar with who Jack mm-hmm. Welsh is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, famous he was the CEO, CEO of GE, right? GE. Yeah, GE. Yeah. Neutron Jack himself. I, he attributed the massive spike. I don't know if you know this, but during during uh, George W. Bush's reign as president, the CEO compensation skyrocketed compared to, if you were to ratio it, compared to the lowest paid to the highest mm-hmm. paid personnel. Mm-hmm. He attributes, as a former CEO, he said, I never made a fraction of what CEOs make today for companies that have almost no value when compared to GE, General Electric. And he said, this is the direct result of terrible boards who do not – they're not invested in the company. And they're like honorary board members. They're board members who are CEOs of other companies that in different markets that are the golfing buddies. Like um, I want to say like Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison, though they were technology-driven, Larry Ellison. And then the guy that was uh, – Larry Ellison is a oh, – he wasn't Sun Microsystems. What was it? He was a technology company, but non-competitive with Apple. Yeah. And, um, and then you have the guy Eric Schmidt from Google. And Google is Apple's number one competitor in the phone space because Eric Schmidt was on Apple's board and stole the idea of the yeah. iPhone because he was exposed to it. He was competing the the Google phone, the Andro- the first Android phone, the G1 was going to com- was competing with the BlackBerry. And then he saw the iPhone and was like full stop immediately changed everything to a touchscreen device. Now yes, the reason why I said this is uh, yes, and immediately removed Eric Schmidt and as Apple has been in a war of attrition with Google ever since. Um, but the, the thing that was funny was um, boards matter more than people realize. And when boards don't take their jobs, even at for-profit companies don't take their jobs seriously. So a CEO 
you have the CEO and chairman of the board. Often the same person, not always they are. Um, but he, Jack Welsh said it's terrible boards who aren't involved in the life of for-profit companies that have led directly to the skyrocketing of CEO income because they, they're, number one, they're not nurturing and raising up good CEOs and chairmans. And then when someone leaves, they're, they're, uh, they're so desperate to replace the CEO that they engage in the golden parachute, right? They'll say, okay, even if you fail, we'll give you $25 million as your exit. And all of a sudden you have these insane salaries to woo talent because they're not cultivating people from within the organization, et cetera, et cetera. And it's fascinating to hear, like you talk about nonprofit boards and our hypothetical, theoretical, uh, Catholic nonprofit board, but they're like boards matter so much. And in like four and a half hours, you have to take a, a big test on it. <laughs> Not in four and a half hours. And well, I mean, to, to be honest, I have to take it between eight and 12 and I need to, I need to do it early tomorrow. Cause I have a lot of stuff to do. So I've got time, but not really. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I just, um, it's funny if a board, if you have a really good board, there means there's an active relationship between and I'm going back to the whole I'm a nonprofit example. Like there's, there's just a lot of stuff going on. The board is very involved in their roles as board, not necessarily involved in the day-to-day operations, of course, of, of the organization, but in their role as a, um, as a board member. And I, I, I yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually really glad that I am I'm taking this class because it has definitely changed a bit of my, it, it has, it has made me more intentional with my approach to boards now. So it's also made me very glad that we never made um, Captain Fox as a nonprofit. Ugh, <laughs> no, thank you. No, no thank, thank you. you. No, thank We're all you. about the Benjamins. What? What? <laughs> Seriously. And speaking of which, let's take a brief moment to talk about our sponsor, Rooted. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. They're oh, so my gosh. Good. They are I don't even so know good. what our copy is, but they're so good. Should I pull up the copy? I don't even know if I want to talk no, about the copy. No, don't even pull up the so copy. Good. Here's, this is the best part. Every time I'm in the shower, I'm like, pump, pump, let's clean this yep. beautiful face of mine. It's yep. so delightful. <laughs> I love it so much. I bought the face toner and I use it every morning and my face actually looks a little bit clear. I have a skin routine. <laughs> Luke has a skin routine now. Oh, gentle Luke. So they gentle sent me – so I think they sent you the same stuff that they sent me. Um, Aaron's in love with the stuff they sent. Okay, one is – so I actually use this too. It, uh, it's like a sugar thing where you like put it on your hands and your other parts, parts of your body and it feels amazing and Aaron was in love with it. So how how what has Shannon like what has Shannon uh, thought has she shared Shannon has about the it? eyelash and the eyebrow conditioner whatever it's called she is freaking in love with this stuff she originally she was putting it on incorrectly <laughs> like like you're supposed to put it on like overnight or whatever and she was just putting it on in the morning or something and she's like oh my goodness this has literally changed the way I do like. Everything, my morning, my evening routines, my nighttime stuff, the makeup response, all that stuff. I don't understand women. But she did all of that stuff, and she's like, this eyebrow and eyelash stuff is incredible. Erin's absolutely in love with the sugar stuff that they gave her. I don't know what it is, but I did use it once, and it was really, really cool. So if you can't tell, we are t- we are talking about a great company uh, called Rooted for for Good. They are a, sk- they are a skincare company, and... 
I was so impressed with like the face stuff that they gave us where we do the little, we like have all of like pumping stuff that I went and bought a face on toner from them. And I think they sent me the uh, beard, the beard oil, which I am enthralled with as well. No, I am like, I'm, I'm, I am not kidding. They, they're not paying me to say this. In fact, they wanted us to talk about, to talk about like, I don't know what our wives thought. I'm a, I'm, they got me forever. I'm in love yeah. with it. I'm absolutely in love with it. What what's what's your favorite part about the rooted products that you have used? I'm not gonna lie, it's the smell. My, I use the I literally it, use yes. the face stuff all the time, and the smell is amazing. Yes, same, same. And uh, I really think that Erin, honestly, is like uh, the stuff that like she uses from them. She's not gonna be going back to um uh, to anyone else because she just absolutely loves it. So you have a chance right now to go and buy some awesome little stuff from uh, from them and get 10% off if you go to unrootedforgood.com. That's R-O-O-T-E-D-F-O-R-G-O-O-D.com, therootedforgood.com. Uh, buy all the stuff because they are amazing. You're going to want to buy the beard oil if, if you're a dude, have a beard. Everyone needs to buy like face wash stuff. I really recommend you get a face toner as well. That's been very, very cool. They have the sugar thing, which is great. If you're if you are a woman, they've got tons of stuff that you're going to like. If you're a dude, they've got they've got um, tons of stuff that you're going to like. And here's the great part, Gomer. Are you ready? I'm ready. As our good friend um, Samuel L. Samuel uh, Sam L. J. says, hold on to your butts. Ten <laughs> percent off with code um, Foxes ten. Again, that's going to uh, um, rooted for good, and you can get ten percent off with the with the code um, Foxes ten. At rootedforgood.com with all their skin care products. Since love grows within you, so beauty grows. For love is the beauty of the soul, St. Augustine. That's exactly what I used to tell you every night before we would go to bed you in, would the, just, in the project. You would just play with my hair and you would just mm-hmm. say, night, night, baby bird. Night, night. <laughs> Luke, I have a couple questions, man, and oh, you have sorry. 45 minutes. This is 45 minutes, Luke. I got like 20 minutes left with you. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are you ready? Go. Okay, so I listened to one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Now, it's not the sh- – Please tell me it's about – it's the, um, the Dawson thing. Yes. Yes. So the Christopher Dawson Society in Australia – Christopher Dawson is an English writer who was a Catholic historian. Brilliant stuff. There's a podcast for the Christopher Dawson Society in Australia, and it is awesome. And I really um, – I became acquainted with the writings of uh, a wonderful philosopher and theologian named Tracy Rowland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D. I love her. I have loved so many articles so many um, books and stuff that have her commentary in them. She is very a, a a deeply respected Thomistic author who also has a great love for the Novel Theology, the New Theologians, blah blah blah, like Hunters from Balthazar. So, yeah. can, if you have that, can you really be a Thomist? Abso- absolutely. Go on. <laughs> absolutely. I know. I'm I know just you're just kidding, kidding but I'm she. Kidding. Um, so while I was mowing the lawn, I listened to it. Uh, listened to. I listened. Man, I've had a lot of Truly's punch today. I listened to her talk for the third time, and it's the world will be saved by, well, her commentary on Dostoevsky's The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. In the literary masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote that beauty is the battlefield 
where God and Satan contend with each other for the hearts of men. And in another work, The Idiot, he wrote that only beauty can save the world. Thus he had two notions of beauty. The first was beauty as our saviour, and the second was beauty as a battlefield. In this paper this evening, I intend to expand on these insights with reference to the theology of Joseph Ratzinger, now Pope Emeritus Benedict, since he too, like Dostoevsky, was particularly interested in the evangelical significance of beauty. And from that, she dives into a handful of stuff. I I mean, like all over the place in, in a good way of applying that dictum. Like, why did Dostoevsky say that? Number one, it's because he's a Russophile or a Slavophile. They, they, the, the Russians avoided the Enlightenment because of their isolation, but at the same time, their orthodoxy, all this different stuff, allowed them to kind of, from Dostoevsky's perspective, allowed them to surpass in their theologizing and philosophizing the, the big errors of the Enlightenment, especially Immanuel Kant, the rationalist par excellence. But it's funny because it's almost like they skipped the Enlightenment. They skipped the 1700s and plopped down. Went in the straight into Marxism. Yeah. Right with Marxism. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because, because, I mean, for people who don't know, Russia is half European and half Asian. And, and the Uri Mountains, which are a handful of miles you know, east of Moscow and St. Petersburg and all that stuff, splits what is known as Europe from what is known as Asia. And so, like, Siberia is technically... Asia. It's not Europe. And so there's these elements within Russia that allow it to escape continental European whatever, right? The zeitgeist that's going through Europe at the time. But at the same time, it also allows it to be affected by it in different ways. And so you have um, in the 1700s, you know, the Tsardom and all this stuff, the Tsardom became corrupt because throughout all of continental Europe, they were going through the Enlightenment and they were going through what now is known as political liberalism. You know, trying to give every person a vote, a participation, all that stuff, rep- republics, representative democracy, whatever you want to call it. And when, when you looked at Russia in the 1900s, it was as if it was in the 1600s, right? Mm-hmm. And so the the aristocracy, the czardom, all of that stuff was overthrown in by the Bolsheviks in a bloody, bloody, bloody mess. But when Tracy Rowland was telling the story, she was saying the, the Slavophiles, the people who loved the Slavic peoples, especially Dostoevsky, found them to be superior because they didn't have to deal with Immanuel Kant and all the others. But, and the main thing being, they didn't have to deal with a false vision of reason known as rationalism. Dostoevsky was a Slavophile, that is, one of those Russian intellectuals who believed that the culture of the Christian East was superior to that of the Christian West, in large part because Russia didn't have an 18th century the way that Western Europe had an 18th century. He was in particular highly critical of the rationalism of the West. That is, the way that Western culture placed so much weight on the work of the human intellect, unaided by revelation. When he argued that only beauty can save us, he was arguing that only beauty, and in particular the beauty of the Christian mysteries, 
could save the world from the rampant rationalism of the West. And in her lecture, she breaks open how Dostoevsky was able to maintain a love of beauty because he had revelation in its fullness, within, which incorporated truth mm-hmm. known through human reason, but also beauty and goodness. And she did the stellar move where she says, up until, you know, basically the 1500s of, uh, in the Catholic Church in the West, of Thomism as it developed from the 1200s to the 1500s, you have uh, Suarez, this guy, famous Thomist, you know, all this stuff. And much is built upon him, so I don't want to just throw him under the bus. But what she says was he basically divided love or uh, goodness from beauty from truth. In, in like it was kind of this led to the sawdust Thomism that Hansers von Balthasar rejected. In addition, the works of the Swiss theologian Hansers von Balthasar offer something of a pathology report on how the true, the beautiful, and the good, that is the transcendentals, how they became separated from one another in the collapse of the medieval theological synthesis from the 14th to the 18th centuries. And it was funny because he saw himself as engaging in this project to reunite these transcendentals that Thomas himself united, right? Like, and, and the whole spirit of that age, not just Thomas, but Bonaventure and others, And it was amazing to hear her talk about it because as a Christian, we need truth, beauty, and goodness. But what often happens in the response to the Enlightenment is we think we're going to out-rationalize the rationalist Mm -hmm. by being more rational. And Mm -hmm. Hansers von Balthasar throughout the 1900s is like, stop trying to – and not just him, but the whole – I guess you could say – it was a, a, an awakening of Catholic intellectuals that yeah. we're not going to out-rationalize the rationalists. We need to out-good them and out-beauty them, right? And so that's the project of Hans Urs von Balthasar, but not just him, but all, all the others, um, of known as the Nouvelle Theology. And also people in uh, like Thomas, like Father Garrigou Lagrange, I've been studying him somewhat intensely. I have a handful of books of his, but I'm listening to a lot of like background theology or uh, podcast discussions on them. And it's fascinating how they were all kind of driving towards the same project, but in radically different ways. I don't know. So I sent you a handful of quotes. What, what were your thoughts on that? I, so I listened to, I have not uh, read the quotes because I haven't had time, but uh, I listened to it when I was driving back because I went home for 20 or uh, four hours in B in, in between sessions last week. Oh, weekend. you got home. Yeah, for 24 hours. Very, that's, very, uh, very quick. But that's worth it, man, right? It was. It was. Yeah. How long the drive I, I, is that for you? How long the drive? It is um, – it was about four hours going back and about, th- and about three hours and um, about 45 minutes coming back here. Totally worth it. So, it, yeah, it kind of – yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, – it really hit me hard for a couple – I mean, one, like, you know how I feel about um, Balthasar and, you know, um, uh, 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 Benedict and Rathinger and uh, just kind of – it's funny because I feel like having – I feel like that person may have I – don't, I don't want to speak out of turn, so I could be wrong about this. She may have been Brad Burst's advisor for his um, dissertation. I don't remember. I only need to ask him. Is Brad um, a doctor? But, Do you have a PhD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, 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 he finished his PhD in like – a couple of years. It was wild. But uh, Brad has like an insane work. Like Brad just, it's, it's nuts. Um, so anyways, uh, 
here, here is my point. I feel like being around Bursa, being involved in ministry, this, this podcast, other things have really helped me understand Ratzinger's theology as well as I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around um, Hans von Balthasar's stuff. I'm, I'm still just kind of like in the – I just take his words and I just allow them to like seep down into my heart and soul and just take root and try to unpack like what he is I'm trying to say. But I think I do have an idea of like what he's doing, but I have a very good idea as to like what Benedict's project is and what he's yeah. trying to do. And this – really put that in a way where I was like, holy crap, this is 100% right. Like, this- Ratzinger's response to Kantian rationalism entailed an engagement with a triad of concepts, reason, revelation, and tradition. He began this work in his Habilitatian Schrift, which is like a, a postdoctoral dissertation, wherein he was critical of the account of revelation found in the works of Francisco Suarez, the 17th century Spanish Jesuit, whose theory of revelation is described as a clutch purse of doctrines, uh, a kind of pocketbook of theoretical propositions. At the Second Vatican Council, Joseph Ratzinger worked on the drafting of the document De Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And in De Verbum, the fathers of the council set aside the Suarezian approach and presented revelation as an historical event in which God the Son reveals God the Father to humanity through the aid of the Holy Spirit. This account was closer to that of classical Thomism and to the theology of St. Bonaventure than to that of the 17th century scholasticism of Francisco Suarez. This whole idea that like they're taking like guys like um, Benedict and Balthazar are really romantics who are taking the who are taking the romanticism of the 19th century, rejecting the like hedonism. Like they're basically um, testing it and holding on to the good and saying this is actually the key. I don't think you can actually convert to the church with with like out beauty, which is why I think Benedict talks a lot about when you convert, it's because of an encounter with Christ. It is like, it is because of the person that you do this as opposed to an idea or a thought, which is what everyone is not like everyone, but I think there is like a big movement in the, in the American Catholic church right, right now to reject just talking about things. No one wants, and I, I don't, this is not me trying to come against, I'm a Catholic speaker or anything. So uh, don't worry. But I think this whole idea of I have – I cannot talk about this anymore. I have to live this out because if I keep talking about this, it doesn't make sense because I think it's only through that encounter with Christ that the faith ultimately – like the, that that are like uh, – that our own human reason – so like my experience has been it's that reason that tends to like I'm going to lead you to faith, although I think that that can happen – it, it is actually it is actually it's like as a reason that helps you unpack faith or unpack an, an experience of faith that you, that, that like you have so also I feel like we almost kind of have it backwards where quite often we 
um, think if we just tell people the right stuff, then they're going to, then they convert. And then let's like dive into like all of this stuff here. So where I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. One, and that, that was her story. That was her, her lecture, which is we have it all backwards. We need to lead with beauty and then go to truth and then end with good, which is Hunter's von Balthasar's kind of project. But the mm-hmm. idea is like, I, I, I remember Bishop Robert Barron, and he was talking with a Protestant evangelist named William Lane Craig. Have you ever heard of him, William Lane no. Craig? Okay. Nope. So uh, if you listen to Matt Frad or um, Classical Theism Podcast, William Lane Craig comes up fairly often because after the guy that just died and then turns out he was like totally sexually skeevy um, – Ravi uh, Zacharias, Zacharias. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so Ravi, yikes! But William Lane Craig, he kind of surpassed him anyway. But um, William Lane Craig has been really, really great in dialoguing, not dialoguing, excuse me, debating with atheists, and that's kind of his shtick. Um, he has a handful of other things, but um, Bishop Barron and him had a had a conversation together, and I remember, like, I hadn't, I've heard of him, but I didn't know any of his stuff. And I, you know, I could have thought, oh, I think he's Catholic because he's defending this, that, and the other. Um, but no, he's not. He was, he was, he's an evangelical of some sort or another. And it was they funny because, are. well, well, him and Bishop Barron were talking, and he, you know, here's a bunch of questions: Why aren't you Catholic? Which is submitted by the audience, and everyone starts applauding. And he's like, "Well, here's a handful of reasons why I'm not Catholic." And I'm like, and when I'm listening to that, because I didn't really have anything invested in him, I'm like, "Oh yeah, dear Lord, he is not Catholic at all, philosophically, theologically." But it was interesting to hear him uh, and Bishop Barron at the end because he said, now, Bishop Barron, you're kind of known for, like, leading with beauty. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's like a uh, – this is my recollection of their conversation. That's the view that I have, you know, like, you should lead with beauty because most people reject the idea of, like, you're, you know, I got my truth, you got your truth. There's no objective truth. There's subjective. So if we lead with beauty, which can overwhelm the human heart, then we can bring him to Christ. And he said – but at some point, you have to make an argument. Desire to appeal to beauty in evangelism. And this seems to me like a good idea, but I wouldn't know how to do it. Uh, I don't think it's enough to just sit, point to the Chartres Cathedral or the Rose Window in Notre Dame or something. I, I don't think that that is going to draw people to Christ. Is, what can we do? in our evangelism that would use beauty in some way to help present the gospel? Well, I, I think, first of all, I would say it, it does. There's all kinds of examples of it working. Think of the famous Paul Claudel experience, precisely with that North Rose at Notre Dame. Yeah. Seeing it converted him. Now, I mean, he moved then more fully into the experience of Catholicism, but it was seeing that window. And I think by a kind of alchemy, if, if the transcendentals are related to each other, that the beautiful leads to the good and to the true. But I think it, it uh, affects something in the soul. It stirs something in the soul that leads you. The other example I like to use is, um, is Brideshead Revisited, you know, where it's really a story of someone coming to the church, symbolized by the manor house of Brideshead. But Charles Ryder, who's the narrator, is like a lot of nuns today or secularists today, you know, kind of a cool rationalist. But it was the beauty of the house that first drew him. And then once in the house, he was drawn into the the challenge of the church's moral life and then to its intellectual life. 
So maybe I'd see it as, as a doorway. It's an opening of a door into uh, the fullness of, of Christianity. Um, and look at all that Balthazar's writing. I mean, all of is, is predicated upon the primacy of the beautiful. And then he traced it from Irenaeus all the way up through Augustine and to Anselm and, and to John of the Cross and on to the 20th century. Um, someone like C.S. Lewis he uses. And he, he kept insisting on the truthiness of truth, right? Like he kept mm-hmm. insisting on, and to me, that was where, like when, when I do my inclusion class, right? So I'm teaching Protestants what it means to be Catholic. I don't just show them religious artwork, like lead with beauty in that way. What I try to do is paint with words a picture of the harmony of the beauty of Catholicism. Like it's a tapestry that makes sense if you worship the God who became incarnate. Like it makes sense that he would have his apostles and his apostles would pass on their authority to safeguard the deposit of faith. It makes sense because from the very beginning, not only do you have the Judaizers, you have the Nicolaitans, you have heresies springing up immediately. First among the Jews, then among the Gentiles, and it's just crazy. So how do you know that you know that you know that this is the gospel? And for me, whenever I preach in the inclusion class, which is not teaching, it's preaching. Like, let's be honest, I should have become a priest. Sorry, Shannon. But the idea, (laughs) sort of just kidding. But the idea is, maybe we should have married clergy. I don't know. But uh, the idea, (laughs) so many things. So many thoughts. So many thoughts. So many thoughts that uh, Father John you Neville's going to yell like at me one at. night and look what happens. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm progressive with your cohort that you've ditched me for. But, uh, <laughs> but no, but my, my thing is like whenever I preach to Protestants about the Catholic thing, it's always rooted in the beauty. Like it's, it's about uncovering the – and I didn't realize I was doing this, right? It's about uncovering – the beauty of what Christ is offering us in the Catholic Church. So it's not just he died for me. So many of my uh, uh, converts are fundamentalist Baptists, you know, that kind of like part of Protestantism. They're not Lutheran. Some of them are, but not all of them are hardcore Lutherans or hardcore Calvinists. They're Baptists, non-denom, all that stuff. And for them, the theology is, you know, once saved, always saved. Christ died for you so you don't have to. And then they encounter the Catholic thing where it's like mortal sin. You can lose your salvation. Oh, my gosh. What are you talking about? And the idea of it is like our whole life, including the sacraments, the liturgy, morality. I just did a whole Theology of the Body week where day three was on how social justice ties into the Theology of the Body. And it was fascinating because I had so many people afterwards be like, I didn't know it was like I didn't know abortion was tied into the incarnation. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's this beautiful tapestry mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and that's what I think Christopher West does so well, is he's really good at laying the sexual teaching out of the church in a beautiful way, not just in a, like, here's the truth from a natural law perspective, but it's like, here's the beauty of human love and the divine plan, and that's what's so appealing or attractive. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop talking. But like, I mean, that's the thing is like, I think you, when Bishop Barron and William Lane Craig were talking, they were like, you know, uh, like he's like, well, then you got to tell them the truth. And it's like, yes, 
but it's more like, for instance, the, the, the good Samaritan, right? You could say, Jesus could have said to the guy that came and, and, and um, the lawyer, the scholar of the law coming and attacking Jesus. Like he came there to test Jesus, you know, and Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? And he says, well, love the Lord, your God with all your mind and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so he goes, okay, great. But wishing to object, uh, uh, wishing to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told him the parable, a story of the Good mm-hmm. Samaritan. And the mm-hmm. story of the Good Samaritan is your fellow Jew is left stricken. Everyone abandons him. But here's this rotten, demonic race, you know, race that we hate, Samaritan, who does every – jeopardizes his own life and well-being in order to help him. And the, I was listening to a Protestant commentator, which I felt like nailed the beauty side over the truth side. Like he said – Jesus could have just responded with a dictum, a law, saying, you need to serve those who are in need. But what he did was he told them a story that led to a dynamic. And that's what beauty is. He tells the story of, like, here's this Samaritan who overcomes all obstacles because he says, if I were put in that place, if I were the desperate, beaten, broken man who was left for dead, I don't care what the political or views are or racial, you know, makeup is. I want that person to help me because I'm in dire need. And then Jesus mm-hmm. says, go and be neighbor. And to me, that's the beauty. Like you could have set a moral law, an axiom, right, a principle. But Jesus gave a dynamic at the heart that to me unfolds the beauty. Like he didn't just say go and serve people who are hurting. He said, like he tells the story and then he says, now you go and be neighbor. To me, that's the dynamic of beauty, not over truth, but where they all kind of are simpatico, like St. Thomas originally intended. I struggle with a lot of this stuff right now because as I'm I'm studying all this stuff, this is basically getting an MBA in non in nonprofit work, you know. So analysis and accounting and um, like HR, like you know, things that are very just like here's the technical stuff that you need to be able to do to run to like run your organization well. And it's not that like work obviously is a very like work is a good thing. Work is a gift from God that comes even before the fall because um, we can create stuff, we can make amazing things happen. And but I don't think we quite understand. We just like like we live in in a world where everything. It's just it's all about like what you can make and what you do and just doing stuff and being doesn't matter and who you are doesn't doesn't really matter. The world is like the like world is our oyster and just do with it what you want. And that I don't think even I truly understand what that does to the way that I view everything. Like, so like everything becomes a commodity, becomes a thing to be consumed because, you know, I think it's, this is why I think most people find like real art boring because it doesn't grasp you. It does, it isn't like a flashy thing for you to just devour and then move on from. You really have, you really have to wrestle with it, which is oddly enough, one of the reasons why I think on beauty can actually work because when it does hit your heart. When it does get to you, it's undeniable. It's like that encounter of moment that people like have with Christ that will change your life because it's just like there was before and after this moment here and I cannot explain it. 
Like I remember the like I have that when we when I listen to certain um, "Me Without You" songs, and I just think about what he's saying and how he is saying it, and what it just ins- how it inspires me to try to be a better husband, like a better Catholic, and then you know a better dad, or like my you know I I will just think about how I'm being selfish, and in my mind, honestly, I this this like happens a lot. I will think of how he sings, oh, I, how I wish I could become the almost servant of all, and like how little things like that. Um, you just can't, like, you can't package that. You can't package it. You can't sell it. You can't, it's, which is a good, like, that's what makes it good is that it's, and, and so it's, and, and it's not that buying and selling things is bad. It's there are some things that you just can't use as a tool because they're not a tool and they're not a thing to do something that like its value is beyond anything that we can really um, comprehend. You, you know, so it's like people get angry that the church doesn't sell off all the all the art at the yeah. Vatican. But the yeah. church's response is, no, 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 this is priceless. You can't sell this. This isn't yeah. this isn't for sale. Yeah. You right know? along that there was um, there's this guy who works for um, NYU and he has a hilarious YouTube channel. But he I mean, he's a very funny and slash cynical. I mean, he's a New Yorker. Right. So. um but he does – he deal. gosh, I wish I could remember his name. But it, an Apple podcaster, John Gruber, Daring Fireball, linked, linked to him, and I watched a ton of his videos. And uh, he made a comment about Pope Francis, and he said, you know, I love Pope Francis. Who doesn't? I, even though I'm an atheist, I, I love Pope Francis. He's great. And then he goes through – and at the very end, he said, now, the who's the cardinal in New York City? What's his name? The funny guy. Uh, cardinal Dolan. Yeah, Cardinal Dolan. He goes, now, Cardinal Dolan just finished a $180 million um, restoration of the pipe organ for the, you know, it, whatever it was. It was like a bunch of renovations for the cathedral there in New York City. And then he said, and, the you know, the pipe organ, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, he said, according to the Cardinal, it's for the poor. Anywho, wrapping up, thanks, see you next week or whatever. And he ended his YouTube channel because it was clearly a statement of sarcasm and mockery. And, uh... About six months ago, and th- that, that was like two years ago, about six months ago, I remember listening to a architecture podcast, and um, they were talking about how, how sad it is in America that if you, are a, um, if you are a person of means, you're the only person get, that gets to experience true, gratuitous beauty. Because you get to go to the museum, the Manhattan Museum of Fine Art. You get to go to these beautiful apartment complexes where the lobby, which is guarded by multiple doormen, is filled with artwork and marble. Your bank is filled with Gothic architecture in downtown Manhattan. And, you know, you walk by the Rockefeller Plaza, but then you get to go in and you get to experience, you know, and he goes through all this stuff. And he said, the sad thing about it is in Europe, it was all funded by the Catholic Church. And he said, and the average European walking to the town square, going from his home to his work, if he was a peasant, would pass by beautiful statues, artwork, fountains, town squares, churches, mm-hmm. cathedrals. And just mm-hmm. going to worship on any given Sunday, they would encounter the most expensive artwork in the history of humanity, right? If we were to pull this stuff off the stucco walls of any number of Italian or German or Austrian, you know, walls, 
you could sell them individually and they would go for millions of dollars, right? And he mm-hmm. said, but the average Christian worshipped in artistic splendor. And he said, and it, it kind of bums me out that the only people who get to experience it are the wealthy who can afford to pay for, you know, tickets to the Museum of Fine Art or live in places and spaces where art and architecture is famous. Yeah. And I remember when I heard that, I thought of that man um, on the, the, the NYU professor and thinking the average New Yorker, no matter how rich or how poor, who can make it to that cathedral would hear literally world-class classical music without paying a penny. And not only that, mm-hmm. but it would be tied to the most important thing in his life, which is his faith or her faith. And that what a poverty it is that now we have, you know, folk music and all that stuff. Like, okay, whatever. It might have its place. But the idea is, like, the actual beauty and tradition of the church, the beauty is gone from our lives. All we have is utility. We have block construction. We have thrown up buildings. We have modern architecture. We have brutalist architecture in our churches. And he said how, how like, sad it is that the average peasant 500 years ago had more beauty in his life than a middle-class, upper-middle-class American does today in any major city. Okay, so I don't think, like, wealth is inherently bad. I'm not one of those people who's, like, defund all of the billionaires or any of that stuff. And I'm not saying that, like, wealth is bad. I'm not saying that – I'm not even saying um, – that I'm not saying that capitalism is bad. But I, I am saying that our approach to try to quantify the entire world robs us of humanity. You know, because it's, it, I think it's impossible for people to understand that they're like, some things are just like, you can assign a value to it and you can say that this piece of art is worth a hundred million dollars. But that's just what you're saying it's worth if you want to buy it. it. It doesn't actually like say like what this thing is like. It doesn't really display its actual, like, um, I, I don't even like, almost, like, like, like what it is. Not, I don't even mean its value. I mean, like, what this thing actually is. And, you know, kind of going back to going back to that podcast, when I think about the stuff that um, Benedict talks about, sometimes when I first hear it, it makes me, like, a little uncomfortable. They talked about his whole thing on how he was criticizing European rock festivals for being these, um, 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 pseudo, these pseudo-liturgical experiences. Yeah. Um, and I was like, ugh. Okay, I'm gonna skip over. I that. was thinking of you at <laughs> but, Cornerstone, head head banging to uh, you know Project Eighty Six and being like headbang. You, you don't never headbang. I didn't headbang. No, I didn't headbang. Um, you never. Uh, had, you never. I had a. I had a friend. Listen, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we had a thing every year called the Headbangers ooh. Ball, and my friends were in a punk band that played at the Headbanger Ball. Headbangers, or eventually would. Brendan Smith, Chris Miller, yell at me whether or not I'm right. But headbanging was like the thing, right? You got the drum music. The boom, 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 boom. You were never a headbanger? Not really. No, I, I like more like the mosh pits and just like the um, jumping and, and and the singing along, <laughs> all that stuff. Um, but my You're point is, yeah. like his, his whole point about how sorry uh, this is an attempt to experience god and to like to have a thing where like to find like trying to find meaning 
in things that don't really make a lot of sense, but you can actually get lost in for a bit because of the little bit of beauty that is there or not a little bit, no, because of, because of the beauty that is there, you're able to kind of like get lost in it for a bit, but it's really just based on hedonism. So it doesn't lead to anything. Ultimately, right. it's just an emotional high and then it's done. And you really, you've, as opposed to, and but like my whole point is that we pay to have those things because we view, like we keep viewing. I don't think we know how else to like um, view the world except through like a lens of, of um, the only word that's coming to mind is quantity. So it's like, what, I have to find a way to attach a number to this because if not, it doesn't make sense. And my point is that within, within, within the Catholic faith, that doesn't exist. And so it's not about like, what is this thing worth? Or you can't put a quantity on it. It's more about what is this thing? Like, what am I experiencing right now? Why does this speak to me what's going on here and that's ultimately a thing that we have to be open to and receive as opposed to a thing that you have to try to um you just can't unconquer it you can't buy it you just you know you can't you can't really um, you uh can't package it all that's left is to just experience it does that make sense at all yeah no it, it absolutely does <laughs> okay. because it like the thing is that ratzinger was trying to hit on that he was answering with Fred, uh, friedrich nietzsche who was saying Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they were where Western philosophy went wrong because they tried to mathematize and uh, uh, rationalize music, which is actually historically incorrect. They, the Greeks taught music as math well before Socrates. But anywho, uh, the scales and all that stuff. So when you look at um, what Friedrich Nietzsche was saying, he was saying was we need to go back to the Dionysian rites. The, what we call Bacchanals. The Bacchanals are these essential orgies of music that, that the crowds get lost in the music and therefore can engage in eros, the erotic, like, sweeping away of love. And he reduced it to sex, to orgy making. That's what a Bacchanal was. A Bacchanal was wild music, wild drunkenness, intoxication, and, and ending with or, or culminating with an orgy. And the whole point of Cardinal Ratzinger was to show, or the whole point of his, his writing was to show that ultimately that doesn't satisfy. Like that might satisfy you, that might bring joy or whatever you want to call it to your life immediately, but it can't sustain a human life. And the Bacchanal was ultimately bankrupt because it wasn't beautiful, right? And so his whole idea was, you know, from Cardinal Ratzinger's viewpoint, he said, this is what the modern scene in a secular way is trying to accomplish, right? The modern pop and rock music, that's Tracy Rowland's um, words. Mm -hmm. So modern pop and rock music is trying to rebuild the Bacchanal, right? These, these uh, pseudo Dionysian things, but do it without of the worship of the gods or a god or whatever. And it becomes dangerous. I mean, this is this is exactly what Brave New World talked about with the orgy porgy, right? Like this is when we remove metaphysics and we don't want to think about politics. All we really have left is sex, right? Like I, I mean, like honestly, like we politicize, we 
we make our re- our politics our religion when we get rid of religion as a culture. But then when we get rid of politics and like thinking about the human good and the common ground and all that stuff, all we have left is sex to bring meaning into our life. And it's no coincidence that Friedrich Nietzsche died alone in an insane asylum of syphilis. You know, like that's the end of the Bacchanals. Welcome. Y'all act like you forgot about Dre. Don't forget about Dre. <laughs> Dre, please. I would love to keep going, but I'm, I have yeah, to go. No, we need to end. We need to end. All right, Luke, uh, you want to give any shout-outs to anyone? You want to tell people that you love them and you care for them and you, you want to tickle them? <laughs> I love and care about you. Mm. Luke, I miss I you. I love and care about you. I miss you, too. You were getting so jealous this week. <laughs> no, no. Jealous I, lover. Luke, jealous I, lover. I was not jealous. I am beyond jealousy in the state of envy. And <laughs> and if all your cohort people wake up with, I don't know, a knife in their back, that's that's on them, Luke. That's not on me. That's on them for taking my Luke away. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, no, this has been a very good ex- – I am exhausted though, man. I, okay. I need to – no, 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 We no, have I, to talk about no, abstract I, concepts of beauty, truth, and goodness for another four <laughs> hours because it's almost 1.30 in the morning for you <laughs> or 12.30 no, in the morning for you. I know. It's um, – uh, you know what's really interesting okay. about this whole thing? Yeah. Please um, Is that one of the things I like about my program that I'm learning It's kind of like one of the special things about it is that it really forces you to manage your time well, and which I feel like is an as an executive skill. Like I mean, I, I don't mean just like like plan your day. I'm talking like if you like, there are some times where if I screw up a half hour, I like screwed for the night. Oh yeah, totally. Like it's crazy how much you have to like just be okay. So if I don't like, I'll call Aaron and be like I've got 10 minutes and if she, I feel kind of bad because there's some times when like she started to just like go on and on which you know it's fine and I just gone okay I gotta stop sorry yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I can't to. I can't I, I I have to um and then just learning that okay I'm taking too long on certain assignments I have to cut you know and just you start to make all these trade-offs in your head of like I've got to do this so I won't do that okay I need to be able to like summarize this I won't go as deep into that and it's really interesting to try to have to to uh, do all of that. To love your family in the middle of all of it, right? Because that's what it's all about, right? Like, it's not just about producing income. It's not about being – like, you have to love your family in the middle of all of the shenanigans and all of the incredible stuff that you're doing, right? Like, I think the yeah. stuff that you're doing is going to benefit your family for decades, right? Like, it's it's this is the long-haul thing, but the short-haul sucks, the, it does. The yeah. days are long, but the years are short. And what you're doing is for years, not days. So um, I know, I know it's really hard. I mean, honestly, me and my wife, we pray for you all the time, and you and Aaron. And um, thank you. Same. Yeah. I mean, we do because I know what it's like to be traveling, and my my wife knows what it's like to be a single mother because I'm traveling so much, and it, it's burdensome. It's difficult, but you know, there's a greater joy, right? There's a Deferred gratification that's happening because something beautiful is going to be on the other end. So how much longer do you have in Notre Dame? I'm here for about a little over another week. So I go home probably – I'm done with class on, let's say, the 10th. And I am i don't imagine I'll be have, like, the energy to, like, pack up and then just leave. Um, so I'm going to be pack up and then, like, sleep and then head back on the, on the 11th. Okay. Now – 
in, and this is totally serious, and we can we can end right now. But have you been following all the Britney Spears stuff? Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. <laughs> I don't know how many of you know anything about Hans Urs von Balthasar, but for those who haven't heard of him, uh, he was described by the Cardinal Henri de Lubac as being the most highly educated man of his generation. He came from a family where everyone spoke four languages within the family home, which meant that when he grew up, uh, he found it very easy to read a wide body of literature and to translate books from one language to another. Uh, His father was a church architect. His mother ran the Swiss equivalent of the Catholic Women's League. His sister, Renée, or Renata, uh, became the uh, superior general of a Franciscan order of nuns. And his uncle, uh, Vilmos Apor, uh, was martyred toward the end of the Second World War and was beatified uh, by Blessed John Paul II. So, you know, he's sort of got a mother who runs the Women's League, a sister who runs the Franciscans, a dad who builds churches, and an uncle who's a beatified, martyred bishop. So, um, you know, he has an extraordinary um, family background. So... Balthazar argues that between the 14th and 18th centuries, the relationship between the true, the beautiful and the good becomes severed. In theological parlance, we say that the relationship between the three transcendentals um, should be perichoretic, which is a technical term meaning they should be intimately connected in the manner of a circular dance. However, in the cultures of modernity and post-modernity, we have many people pursuing a form of truth truncated to scientific or empirically verifiable rationality without any reference to goodness and beauty. We have other people pursuing beauty without any reference to truth and goodness, and yet others interested in goodness but with a dysfunctional moral compass since they have no conception of truth and they are not pointed in the direction of truth by beauty. So in the works of von Balthasar, you can, you can study the various moves on the chessboard of the European intelligentsia and see how the, this relationship between the true and the beautiful and the good gets dis- disconnected. The primary point to be made about this theological anthropology is that it does not view the intellect as operating in a Kantian vacuum, detached from faith and tradition. 